You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, if you could teach anything, what would you teach? That's such a hard question because, you know, as teachers, we so often are given at least a general curriculum, right? We don't just get to make things up on our own. And I think I have like two thoughts on this. One thought is like, I would just actually decide that with my students, right? A total democratic classroom where we figure out what is is interesting to them and also of societal importance and we'll investigate those issues. So that's like option one. But if you're making me choose, I actually did get to create my own course, which is kind of a cool thing at the college level. I'm teaching a doctoral course called the social stat or the social media curriculum in the spring and it's really fun we're gonna like try to like make sense of all these crazy things happening with social media how yeah. it's changing our society and like how we can teach about it in education so i'm kind of pumped about that that's interesting good for you dan <laughs> thanks <laughs> good on you i think if i were to make a course i have a few ideas one it would be called aftermath Ideally, it would be after after their mathematics class, but it would be focusing on like all the big events. But what happens afterwards? How does like Germany rebuild after World War II? That's fascinating, I think. And it would just be aftermath. I love the way you're pitching this. Like you've actually got a whole cell. You could get students to enroll in this. It reminds me of Dave Burgess, who we had on in one of our first few episodes. He's the Teach Like a Pirate. Talked about like people wanting to buy a ticket to your classroom, like asking, would students want to come to your classroom if they had to buy a ticket? I think students would buy a ticket to Aftermath. I don't know, because a lot of them really just like World War II. So would they want to go to Aftermath? <laughs> right. Like, you are like skipping the big events for exactly. what after. Because that's where humanity <laughs> is. Uh, well, okay. That's one of my ideas. Then I would like to teach a story to historical storytelling course, which could be based on Aftermath. That could be the same course, actually. It may be a government class. Okay. Okay. What's your what's your third idea? I thought you had three, right? Well, there were three there, Dan. Oh, wait. What was the... Aftermath, aftermath? my historical storytelling course. I just happened to merge those two possibly. Oh, yeah. oh okay. And okay. then the government class. I mean, I can do a French Revolution class too if you really want, Dan. Okay. Which is like a more traditional topic, right, in, in schools, the French Revolution. Now, we don't give it enough time to get into some of the things that oh, you could yeah. get into if you had a full course, but that's a traditional topic in schools is the French Revolution, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess it is. I guess it is. I just really, I enjoy it. <laughs> Dan, do you have something to tell me? So maybe this is a little self-promotion-y, but I invited myself on the episode today. Is that allowed? I mean, we've done it before, but why? <laughs> well, yeah, we did it in episode one when we were testing out if this would even work, right? Yeah, Episodes and then we one, also two. did like episode 17, I think. Yeah, episode 17. I've had some of my co-researchers. We talked about professional learning networks. Well, you know, the last few years I've been working on this project, and it really did take several years where I had a couple co-authors and co-editors, and we edited a book. 
Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's it's neat. Like when you like work on a book all the time, like I just couldn't wait to hold it. And then they had like these shipping errors and I had to wait like two and a half more weeks than than my other co-editors. And I was really sad the whole time. Oh, did I get an acknowledgement? Um, have you read the book yet? Yeah, I didn't get a copy either. <laughs> I thought I sent you a digital copy. We, you know, actually I put an acknowledgement to you, but you just never know these these editors. They just take stuff oh, out. <laughs> I bet it was one of the other two. Let's actually bring them on. Uh, we have Annie Whitlock and, oh, friend of the pod, Mark Helmsing. Hello. Hi. Hey. Who edited me out? That was Mark. That's what I figured. Thanks a lot, Mark. <laughs> Sorry. Eh, it happens. What is the title of this book, Annie? It is called Keywords in the Social Studies Concepts and Conversations. Ooh. The idea was that this book would spark conversation and have ideally disagreements that people would disagree about some of the concepts that we talked about in here and ways that people have written about them. No kidding. You can also just converse with the book, like no one's stopping you. So that's an option too. <laughs> Wait, let's let's do this formally. All right, so we have we have Dan, who I feel like we already know. So yeah. Dan, we don't need to tell us about your journey in education. But let's start yeah. with Annie. Annie, who are you? What a fabulous question. I am a first and foremost, I guess, an associate professor of elementary education at uh, the University of Michigan in Flint. I in Flint, Michigan. I teach so elementary social studies methods, and that's primarily my area of research, working on uh, integration between social studies and literacy. I've also written some things with Dan about social media use. And I was a middle school social studies teacher for five years before my professor life and have been in the education field in the state of Michigan for a really long time. Nice. Annie Whitlock, we are thrilled to have you on. Happy to be here. Nice. And Mark Helmsing. You were on way back in episode 81. Tell us, who is this Mark Helmsing guy? My name is Mark Helmsing. I am an assistant professor of history and social studies education in the Graduate School of Education at George Mason University. I coordinate our secondary social studies teacher education program, and I have been a classroom teacher of both middle grades and high school grades social studies, and language arts. I identify as a curriculum theorist. That's my background, my training, my passion. And within curriculum theory, I specialize in thinking about the intersections of history, heritage, memory, and how those ideas play out in classrooms, in museums, and cultural institutions, as well as popular culture, which is the focus of my next book coming out next year. And of course, you can hear a lot more from Mark on curriculum theory in episode 81, which is one of our most popular episodes. I don't know if you knew that, Mark, but people love it. That's great. I did not. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing that's really fun about writing a book, you get to interact with so many people. And at the end of our book, everybody turns in their bios, all the authors in the book. And one of the people that wrote in their bio, Ashley Woodson, started her bio. I think her first thing she said is, Ashley Woodson is a mother. And that was like the first thing she said. Then she talked about her professional roles. And it made me think about how we often introduce ourselves in terms of our job. And so like since then, I've started to think about like I like to start off and say, I'm an uncle because I think that's fun. That's interesting. 
I don't know what I would say. I would probably say hot air balloon enthusiast. That's recency bias right here because you just went and saw hot air balloons in New Mexico. Although if you look at my bio for the Vision of Education page, it's also there when I wrote that two years ago. Okay, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and I would say I identify as a book hoarder. <laughs> I liked what the in episode 81, Mark actually went through the curriculum uh, of his life. So if you want more there, that's how we kind of started to brought him in on the episode. I could identify as obsessive Simpsons fan. Nice. That is perfect. So the title of your book is called Keywords in Social Studies, Concepts and Conversations. Do you mind talking a little bit more about maybe like how the book started, what's going on? Tell us about the book. So the origin of this book actually started with a conversation at the annual meeting of CUFA and the National Council for the Social Studies in New Orleans. I forget what year that was. I think it was 2012, maybe 2013. And I approached Dan and Annie because they have always stood out to me as some of the most innovative thinkers and, and educators in social studies. And the idea for the book that I had was to do a keywords book. I first learned about the idea of keywords in graduate school by studying Raymond Williams, one of the founders of what we call cultural studies, who wrote a book about keywords and culture. And I began to notice that many academic fields and disciplines were publishing their own keywords books to help readers understand the contours of their own fields. So there's keywords in media studies, keywords in American studies. Within the field of education, Nancy Lesko and other curriculum theorists co-edited a book on keywords in youth studies. So I felt the time was right to do a book on keywords in social studies. And I saw the book fulfilling a few needs. One, I felt that social studies educators really need to think about the transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary nature of our field and to think about ways in which concepts, topics, issues, some perennial issues and objects of our teaching appear across the disciplines. And in order to do a book of that scope, I wanted to work with colleagues who were working in fields of social studies different from my own. And in that case, it would I thought of Annie and her expertise in elementary education within social studies and Dan's work with technology and media studies as they relate to social studies and other fields. So I was hoping for an eclectic group of, of editors. And I think that we achieved that goal and also within the scope of authors who wrote chapters for our book. I'm really pleased with how broad our scope of contributors is in terms of both experience. We have a mix of early career scholars, veteran scholars, and leading luminaries in our field. We also have voices from K-12 educators and graduate students. And the, the book, I think, really aims to make this uh, an open and inclusive conversation. Do you mind giving me an example of what you mean by keywords? Can you give me a couple of the keywords? I think uh, one way to explain what we mean by keywords is 
in our opening quote in our first chapter, which I'm one of is like my favorite part of the book that we use this quote right on the first page in our introduction. The introduction is called "Unsettling the Social Studies," and we use this idea of settling and unsettling that 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 the curriculum is not fixed, right? That we are constantly trying to figure out what should be the things, and too often. We kind of argue the problem is is that it is fixed for teachers in schools, that the curriculum doesn't change much, but it should change based on our new understandings, based on who our students are, based on our changing world. And so there's this constant settling and unsettling. And we even pointed out that social studies should unsettle us. It should help us understand new things. And so the quote we start our introduction chapter with, we have a quote from Raymond Williams, and then we have a second one from Enigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, where he says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And so when you get to the first chapter, then our next chapter, the first chapter is indigenous. And so it's to think about if you come across the word indigenous in in the social studies curriculum, what does that mean? Or if you come across what is often thought of as a synonym, but some may not think so, like Native American or American Indian. So the very first chapter challenges us to think about why we choose which one of those words and why. So can you tell us about the layout of the book? How are you unsettling us? The layout of the book took many different forms throughout this, the, the course of the project. And we kept going back to the drilling board multiple times to figure out what's going to make for a really compelling layout. What we ended up doing was taking the keywords that authors generated and submitted to us and organizing them in a way that would appear common to many readers. So we organized chapters across the different thematic standards for the National Council for the Social Studies. So the book has 10 sections and our keywords sort of fall into these 10 different sections. And even though that's a very common approach to the curriculum and social studies, the way in which these keywords unsettle our ways of thinking about social studies is not only by some of the topics themselves that we may not think as social studies curriculum on the surface, such as home, family, community, but also the ways in which those keywords are approached, defined, and talked about by the authors. So the book is itself bookended by a foreword and an afterword. The foreword is written by Annalisa Halverson, a scholar in elementary social studies, as well as a historian of the field of social studies. And, and she guest. talks. Yes, that's right. And friend, uh, a friend of the pod, two time guest, a friend of the pod and, and a former uh, mentor and professor for both me and Annie. She, in her foreword, focuses on this idea of knowledge, what counts as knowledge in social studies, how it's constructed and sort of invites readers as they begin the book to think about the ways in which these keywords sort of work as ingredients for mixing up the way we think about social studies and what it could look like in classrooms and in our practice. And that is mirrored in the afterword by Walter Parker. His afterword is special for a few reasons. One, a book that he edited on contemporary issues in social studies actually begins by referencing Raymond Williams and Raymond Williams' own keyword book and keywords project. So we wanted to pay homage in a way to how Walter Parker introduces this idea of keywords to social studies education in his own work. And he talks a little bit about the ways in which keywords work as windows to understanding and thinking about our content in our curriculum. 
So we wanted these to establish voices in our fields to both begin the conversation and provide some intriguing and engaging questions to conclude the book. And one one thing to one thing I'll add is that you know when we think of the social studies being settled and us also unsettling it here, you know we use these ten thematic NCSS standards, which have been around since I believe 1994, and so they've been kind of a staple of the field. Although they have been critiqued, for example, not dealing with race as a major concept or category, but we use those as a way to organize our chapters, which are these kind of more current, you know, recent understandings of what some of the concepts in these categories could be and what we could explore today. So just even the structure of the book tries to get into this these issues of what the social studies curriculum is and could and should be. I'm curious to hear more about like some of the what the chapters look like. Does anyone mind talking a little bit about what was written about? Yeah, so we have for each of these 10 sections on the NCSS themes, we also have a response chapter. So we invited authors to read, you know, the two or three chapters in each section and then write their own conversation, if you will, or response back to the author. So it's something that's really a really unique part of this book that just added another layer of conversation to the, hence the title. Uh, uh, but the conversation I, part. <laughs> the conversation piece. So there are a lot of different ways that our authors approached talking about these different concepts. I think like Dan mentioned earlier, there are concepts that are often taught in I was in social studies classrooms, I would say, and then our authors took it to a new way and say, let's think about this a little bit differently, or let's look at the way that these concepts are traditionally taught in classrooms, and let's try to look at them a little bit differently. I want to point out a couple of my favorites. I don't really play favorites with the chapters, but I will say that there are a few that I kept going back to uh, over and over again. One of them is an elementary scholar. I was particularly drawn to the chapter on family. Uh, families is a concept that are that is taught in you know kindergarten social studies especially is often talked about as like the first unit of a community that students encounter and it was interesting that Erin Adams is the author of the family chapter and the, one of the first things that she writes about is how in secondary classrooms this concept of family is pretty much ignored it's really focused very hard in early elementary and then as the students get up into high school this whole concept it's almost like they are devoid of family is essentially what she's writing. But an interesting quote, though, it says she writes that children under age 18 are not afforded full citizenship rights and are under the custodianship of adults, including teachers and parents. In other words, their individual identity is tied up in and restricted by their families. And often secondary teachers will talk about economics and their economic decisions as if these students make them individually right right now. Um, and they don't still, <laughs> many of them don't at that point. So she talks about ways to introduce family into secondary social studies, asking a lot of provocative questions about what makes a family, what do modern families look like, and how are families formed even throughout history, and using pop culture and television to talk about different states of families, which including in children's books as well, which is done a lot in elementary school and maybe not as much in secondary. I don't know, Michael, you can talk about whether or not you talk about family in your in your history classrooms at all. Very rarely, although right now we're talking about the caste systems in, in Latin America, which does talk about it a little bit, but not for the reasons that you're... Although we should watch modern... or talk about modern family more. It's a amusing sitcom, at least for the first few seasons. <laughs> And she references I, that in her chapter as well. That's what I figured. That's great. Yeah. 
Well, isn't that interesting? The, the way we often probably analyze, you know, families is often through pop culture, through TV shows, which is often fam- family based. And, and so, but, you know, we do talk about this a lot in elementary and I think really important issues that, that secondary, you know, college level students should be talking about too. Just in my elementary social studies methods class the other day, students were working on their, what I call our, their inquiry bell ringers, where they use a, some kind of source and the students are meant to analyze the source and they kind of have discussions around it. And so it's a, it's a discussion activity and they try to get the students to really dig in and think about the source. And so one of my students did hers on families. And so what she did is she picked, she found a lot of images of different families, how they looked different. And this was really important to her because her mother's lesbian and she didn't often feel like her family was represented and she could understand it growing up. And so she just expressed in class how important that was to her, which just reminds us, you know, these aren't also that that's an issue for children, but it's also an issue for the politics that are happening in our country now. And so all ages can be exploring what we mean by family, whose families are accepted, which families are normalized and who are marginalized. And so I just thought of of her the other day wrestling with these issues herself and being the teacher she wishes she had in elementary. Oh, that's, that's really cool. <laughs> it sounds like a fun activity that you do in your elementary social studies methods class that I need to, I need to take. <laughs> it, it, it is fun. Well, I talked about it on a re, on our actual la, uh, recent episode, episode ninety three. Is that what? It, yeah, ninety three is the one. Uh, I talked about it on episode ninety three where I used George Washington's runaway slave ad for own a judge, and we spent like forty minutes just talking about this single document and how it could be a way to introduce slavery, a difficult topic, to kids because it's just very contextual and there's a lot to analyze in it. So it is a fun activity. I, anyone who wants to know more about it, tweet me, at Dan Kretka. <laughs> I say it at the end of every episode. <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting that you bring up runaway slaves in this, in the source with Ona Judge, because another one of my favorite chapters ties in another... I go say popular figure, Harriet Tubman, that's often taught in social studies classrooms and connects her with another concept that's often taught in social studies classrooms, but they're not often taught together, which is entrepreneurship. Tell me more. So one of my favorite chapters is written by Matt Messias and Christy Brueger, and they write about how we need to look at what we consider, who we consider to be entrepreneurs and what characteristics we might want to look at instead of the traditional measures of success, if you will. Growing up in Michigan and teaching in Michigan, you know, Henry Ford is hailed as the entrepreneur of a lifetime and probably in other states as well. But around here, he's kind of a big deal, I guess. And they're challenging that and saying we need to look at some new people as entrepreneurs. And instead of looking at them in, in a business sense, but thinking about entrepreneurs in American history who are innovative thinkers, who saw a need for change and seized opportunity and took risks and had a desire to lead. And they hold up Harriet Tubman as somebody who is a epitome of all of those different things. I mean, we should study her when we study entrepreneurship and what it means to be an entrepreneur. So I thought that was a really fascinating take. So it's another example of a chapter that went in a direction that I wasn't expecting. When we get a chapter back on entrepreneurship, that's not what I was expecting to read. Which I think was the really exciting part about getting all these authors together to write about these different concepts. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd like to hear more about chapters that kind of blew you guys away. Not to quote Hamilton, Dan. (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll share a few of my favorite chapters. I 
it's just like this podcast. I felt like writing this book, I just got to learn from other people. And numerous sections and chapters stood out. I mean, just even from the beginning of the book, you know, our section one is the culture section, and it had the first chapters on indigenous, the second chapter was on the term ethnic, and then the third chapter was actually response about this concept of culture and social studies. And it was one of my, it was, it was a response section chapter, so those are a little bit shorter, but it was written by Amanda Vickery and Delandria Hall, and I really Amanda liked Vickery it. Amanda Vickery was on our show. I know, I know, and we'll have her on again, then she'll be a friend of the pod. Right. <laughs> and so she their chapter response was called Spilling the Lemonade in Social Studies, a response to the culture section. And in that, I really liked how they they the spilling the lemonade part is a reference to Beyonce's visual album titled Lemonade. And they just talked about how well Beyonce was able to connect the past and the present. And they said, using imagery that unapologetically celebrates and affirms the cultural, experiential and historical knowledge of black women. And then they contrasted that to what often happens in social studies where we don't do that. And that was something that really stood out to me because I think there's a lot of elements of our society, popular culture, movies, novels, where they do a better job than we do in the social studies classroom of wrestling with issues. So that opening section I found really good. Jody Latramure's chapter on the environment, just titled Environment, was one that really stood out to me. She just really challenged the way we talk about environment. Specifically, I liked her bringing up the concept of greenwashing, which is a concept we should probably be talking about a lot in social studies. Is uh, greenwashing is the is the superficial or insincere display of concern for the environment shown by an organization, often to deflect attention from the organization's environmentally unfriendly or less less savory activities. And so she talked a lot about how companies often skirt their responsibilities and try to put eco guilt on consumers to do stuff. And she referenced, it's a little sad because she ruined the, she's going to ruin the, the end of the Lorax for us all. Oh no. I know where the Lorax dire warning was, unless someone like you cares There's a whole awful, awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. And she I, said, this is the message that companies try to send to us that if we don't clean up the messes they've made, then things are going to stay bad. And she points out that 71% of carbon emissions since 1988 have come from just a handful of, of the top 100 companies in the world and that they are make, asking us to do their recycling. And I know, for example, Coke did that when they switched from bottles to plastic. They helped to start recycling campaigns and put the responsibility. They created a huge mess and asked us to clean it up. So she also, she really in the chapter tries to help us rethink what we mean by environment, not at something out there, but to rethink ourselves in the world. And I can't even come to, I can't even start to explain the way she does it because she did such a beautiful job of thinking that we can't think of the environment as something separate from ourselves. And it's, it's a beautiful chapter. I'm really upset about the Lorax. I know. He's still he's trying to do good. It's not he it's is. not that the Lorax he speaks is for the trees. I know. It's not that the Lorax is wrong. It's just that we can't think only in terms of individual change. We have to change these larger social, you know, issues. So and and I won't speak, you know, in detail about a lot of other chapters. I was too excited. I like wrote down a list of all the chapters I want to talk about, but um former guest Kim Pennington, one of hey. our she was our she was our first guest not not ourselves. You used to work with her. I did. She was my department chair. She wrote a chapter called Consumption and explored the, the, our overconsumption and how normalized that is in our society. And she had, this is one of the things you learn when writing a book. So apparently poems are really hard to get in 
to books because there's just a lot of copyright issues. And apparently Shel Silverstein's estate is not very friendly to people quoting him at all. That's and why so, I never quote. I only quote I Seuss. You've been so careful. <laughs> it was also very hard to get Beyonce lyrics cleared. I imagine. We did, and we did not. We, we took the Beyonce lyrics we out. Did not. And I'm sad for Kim's chapter because she started with this beautiful section of Hungry Mungry. And if you've never read Hungry Mungry, we'll add it to the show notes. It's this story about this. It, it's such a, the metaphor still works for a chapter, even though it's taken out. But it's this it's this kid who's, you know, he takes his knife and spoon and fork and he starts eating everything. And his parents are like, whoa, hey, you got to slow down. And then he starts eating the table and the tablecloth and they try to get him to slow down. And he just keeps eating until he starts eating like the table and the house and then Why he starts he eating that? like countries and planes and cities and things like that. And it ends with this. And she had the, the end of it in there thinking about overconsumption and what it's doing to our society. And she said it's and it says we can I'm going to read this and hope Shel Silverstein's estate doesn't listen to this podcast. Then sitting here in the cold, dark air, he started to nibble his feet, then his legs, then his hips, then his neck, then his lips till he sat there just gnashing his teeth because nothing was nothing was nothing was. Nothing was left to eat. So he eats himself in the end, and there's nothing left in the universe because he's eaten everything. And so, (laughs) that's a Spaceballs reference. And so, anyway, her chapter is just about the the dangers of overconsumption. And she talks about how we don't teach about that. We teach that all growth is good, bigger is better, but we don't teach about what is sustainability and what does it mean for our planet. So, there's a lot of great chapters, and I could go on about them. Mark, you've been silent for a long time, and I imagine that some things blew you away or blew your socks clear out of the water. Tell us, Mark. Well, one thing that strikes me as something that these that all these chapters do is they each approach their keyword in a different way. And that was something that we as the editors made intentional from the design of the book was that we welcomed potential contributors to propose any keyword we did throw out a few suggestions, but for the most part, authors presented and, and submitted their own keyword and their own ideas for the chapter. And we gave authors a lot of room for deciding what they wanted to do in their chapter. So across the book and, and throughout the different chapters, the authors are all doing different things and modeling different ways of kind of tracing and following that keyword in teachers' curriculum. For example, Megan Lists and her chapter on gender not only focuses on gender as sort of a contemporary issue of identity in in our present moment, but Megan also goes back and looks at gender through a historical lens. And so you can find different moments in which gender becomes a crucial lens for looking at human action uh, in society in different historical periods. And in the immigration chapter, the authors provide a lot of different, what they call divergent discourses on immigration. So they wisely begin the chapter by juxtaposing a quote from President Obama and a quote from President Trump that look at immigration from vastly different (laughs) divergent discourses. And what these and other chapters do is give readers what we would call food for thought. How does this keyword live in our curriculum? Where does it lurk? Where does it sort of hide and make itself known in our teaching? Where might we look for this keyword when we're lesson planning, designing curriculum, and planning our teaching? And what does it mean when these keywords are representing aspects of both our our current life, our current social condition, and also helping us think about the past and how different keywords have evolved over time? 
the, the role that these keywords play in helping us imagine our curriculum and, and what social studies is and also what social studies can do. You know, what, why, why is this a vitally important subject matter to have in schools? And I'm really pleased with how the different topics, the keywords themselves and the authors help us imagine the subject in new ways. So overall, what is the goal of your book? What do you want teachers to take away from from your book? So one thing is that we intentionally had authors write discussion questions so that at the end of each keyword, the reader is confronting a conversation in a way with the with not only the keyword itself but also the chapter's authors and these discussion questions can you know be used in a variety of settings but ultimately they're designed to help engender some thinking in the reader about the keyword itself to what extent does the keyword help us think differently about social studies what are ways that we can slice and dice and approach the keyword in our curriculum we intended on purpose a variety of audiences for this book. And that presented some challenges for us as editors, because first of all, we wanted the book to be accessible to as wide of an audience as possible, including K-12 educators, undergraduate and graduate students in education and social studies. Also, uh, educational researchers who may not be familiar with social studies, but also educational researchers who are deeply involved in social studies. And also, we wanted this book to appeal to readers who may be outside of education and outside of social studies and using this book as an invitation to dip their toes into what are the conversations folks are having about social studies. One of the sort of talking points that I make a lot with my students, and I think we include this in the introduction, is that if you go into a bookstore, you'll find sections in the bookstore that correspond to almost every other school discipline. There's a science section in Barnes & Noble. There's a literature section in, in, in Barnes & Noble. There's our sections on music, art, math, but there's never a section that's called social studies. Social studies may appear in bookstores as history or political science or current affairs, but the idea of social studies itself is, is almost this strange kind of alchemy. And we're hoping that this book helps people kind of wrestle with that and what those implications are. Yeah, I would love for a teacher or a teacher educator to look at our book and say, oh, I never thought about this concept this way. Like, I would love for them to read, you know, what one of our authors are saying and, and writing about and thinking like, this could be a new way that I bring this into my classroom. Or on the other hand, reading it and saying, I don't agree with this at all. I think this is, doesn't make any sense to me. And then being able to, in the future, perhaps write their own response to some of these chapters and thinking about these concepts in different ways. I would love to see a goal of this book is to, for it to continue on, to continue to be a conversation around these topics. And we have had conversations as editors about the need to already put out a second volume. Every time a, a, a new issue, a new problem, a new condition kind of confronts us in the news and in public social conversation, Annie, Dan, and I will, will come together and say, oh, we need a keyword on this. So we can already think of multiple, multiple keywords. And we know that the book itself is not exhaustive on all the possible topics that could have been included. One of the hardest things about being editors is you have to be selective. You have to make cuts. 
You also can't perhaps make it as encyclopedic as, as you want it to be. But we know that these conversations are not one-time only conversations. We hope that they'll continue, they'll evolve, new topics will, will emerge, new keywords will position themselves as driving influences in our field. Yeah, no, I'll just, I guess, finish with saying that I, I hope people can get some ideas from these chapters, right? Even just going and leafing through the table of contents. We have so many chapters we haven't mentioned, whether it's, you know, Kristen Duncan's excellent chapter on race or uh, Wayne Jurnell, a uh, friend of the pod, his chapter on terrorism, which helps us rethink that. And of course, Annie and Mark wrote a great one on on time, which helped us think about how we group and think about time. And they, they have a good little discussion on on like how we've already labeled millennials and whether that's we're doing in appropriate ways that we just label groups this quickly and and get into some other really good issues there and and so it's it, you know it's just a, a fun book to write so if you, if you pick up a copy we hope that you'll be able to get some ideas for your own classroom rethink some things and we're sorry it's not that cheap when we originally negotiated with Peter Lane part of it was that we thought they were the most affordable by the end of a book process, you're kind of so worn out. I think we just forgot to like check that again. And then it was out and it's like 62 bucks. But so maybe your school library can buy it for you. And just to say, we do not get hardly any of those proceeds. I'm looking forward to like buying a Kit Kat bar with the money we get from this book. So, <laughs> so Dan, this is my last question. It's geared towards you. If you were to come up with a slogan for your book that was not the title, could you give us your slogan? This is very on the spot, Michael. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I guess like our slogan could be also unsettling social studies. Could be our unsettling and settling social studies. I just already went off of what I came up with. Unsettling social studies. I'm sticking with that final answer. Nice. <laughs> well, Mark, Annie, Dan, I appreciate you coming on to the pod today. Can I finally be a friend of the pod now? It seems like all the other authors in our book and contributors are friends of the pod. The next you time. Left out. You have to come on twice, Annie. Yeah. <laughs> and we will, but we can make a promise that you will be back and soon have that status so desired in the social studies community. You'll be yeah. back. Apparently. I need to add this to my bio. Nice. Cool. So, Annie and, and Mark, where can our listeners find you or your work online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mark Hilsing. It's my Twitter handle. I am also on Twitter at Annie Whitlock. I'm on Instagram as Flinstagram18. That's my Instagram account where I have documented my life and work in Flint, Michigan, a very unique place. Now, where can I get a hold of a, a copy of this book? Apparently, I was emailed a, a draft at some point. But where can I get a proper one for my bookshelf? You can find the book on Peter Lang's website. You can also find it on Amazon.com. And there's a preview of the book if you go go to Amazon and you can kind of look at the table of contents and see whether you want to buy that or have maybe your library buy it. Cool. Well, again, thank you for joining us today. We hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're all about sharing the learning at the Vision of Education podcast. If you're doing something fun in creative education or you just want to chat, hit us up. We're at Visions of Ed on the Twitter. We're also on Facebook. And of course, if you haven't already, and at this point, really, come on, subscribe to Visions of Education podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be, except Spotify. We'll be there soon.
I promise. I shouldn't promise that. I don't know how Spotify gets people on. If you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. And we really appreciate you doing that because that helps people find this podcast and makes it worth our time and Zach's time as our amazing editor. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.